You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Ambassador Marco Sermanata, who is the Consulate General of Israel to the Pacific Northwest. Based in San Francisco, he is a career diplomat since 1993. He is here to build partnerships and coalitions of support for Israel with people and the government of Northern California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Alaska. Marco has served as Israel's ambassador to Colombia, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Jamaica. He has also been the head of the European Multilateral Organizations Desk in the European Division of the Foreign Ministry. On this week's episode, we talk about how can Silicon Valley companies get in contact with investors from Israel? How can the Israel consulate help companies here and abroad? How has the technology that has been developed in Israel spill over to neighboring countries? This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, to begin with, I want to thank the press department at the Israel Consulate's office for setting up this interview. We've gone back and forth with emails and they've really helped out. They've really been a great support of this. So Savan and the team there, thank you so much. And with that, I want to introduce our guest today. Marco, I've studied and learned a little bit about your background. But for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about your career up until this point? Thank you, Sean. It's really nice to be here. I'm a career diplomat. This is my 30th year in the business. And I've really been fortunate to work in very different environments, very different countries. Most recently, I was the ambassador of Israel in Colombia. But I also have India and Japan and the UN in my CV. And I've arrived to the Bay Area about seven months ago, covering from San Francisco, the North California region, as well as all the way up Pacific Northwest, all the way up to Alaska, as well as Idaho and Montana. Now, is this your first time in the U.S.? Not really. I've been here several times. As I said, part of my career, I was a political counselor at the Israeli mission to the U.N. My first visit was when I was 17. I was a part of a group of young ambassadors who were traveling across the country. We were divided into pairs and each pair got to go to a different part of the U.S. and talk to our peers about Israel. And, and that's where I, and I really decided I wanted to be a diplomat. And I also spent several months here crossing the country right after I finished my army service and came over to visit friends, do some hiking in national parks. And, you know, I also been a bunch of times. I most recently, I was right when the pandemic struck. I was the acting consul general in Miami for a couple of months. That was an experience for sure. How is it seeing the Bay Area from when you were 17 to seeing it now? Mm, well, I mean, I'm not going to go into how many years have gone by, but it's, it's definitely different in the sense that as an Israeli who is vividly aware of the importance of the tech community and the tech industry in our country and its contribution to our economic advancement, to see that reflected, first of all, in the sort of exchanges that exist, the presence of Israeli tech community in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, Israeli professionals who work for big tech. So not only venture capitalists, not only startups, but also some level of seniority, you know, there's senior people in LinkedIn and Google and other big tech. And that's kind of keeps you on your toes. 
in a sense. I mean, when you're a traveler, it's different, right? And now it keeps me on my toes in, a, in the positive sense of always thinking what can be done more? Where do we come in as a consulate or the consulate has not only the innovation branch and press branch that you, that you mentioned, but we also have a full-fledged economic mission that covers even more states in the Western part of the U.S. So how do we bring in our value in connecting B2G, B2B, sometimes B2C? You mentioned economic there, and I'm curious, because you were in Colombia, you're in Jamaica, you're in Dominican Republic. How is, well, entrepreneurism a little bit different there than maybe here in the Valley, what you've seen? Because well, over the last three years, so many entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley have moved to just those places you've mentioned. And right. I'm really curious, what might they have experienced that was a little bit different than here? And give our audience a little bit of life experience from those places. It's an interesting question because I think that Colombia, of all the countries that you mentioned, is probably the most relevant in terms of what it has been, it has succeeded in doing in recent years, I would say probably a decade. And that is to take the issue of innovation and try to make it into a significant component in the economy. I cannot speak to how successful it was, but when you have the government really betting on innovation and entrepreneurship as part of its forward-looking vision. Until August 22, the president of Colombia, for example, was when he started, was I think in his early 40s, Ivan Duque was definitely trying to focus on innovation as part of the future of the economy of Colombia. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of funny because I knew him when he was uh, just a senator and after he was elected, but he wrote a book on what he called the orange economy. And the orange economy for him, the way he defined it, it was the, anything that has to do with innovation in the creative fields like filmmaking, gaming, that kind of stuff. And it was interesting to see how Israel was actually used as an inspiration to him and how he saw this kind of initiatives. Because the first chapter of the book is dedicated to Israel. And what Israel did, I don't know if you know, but Yozma was basically how the Israel innovation and the startup nation started because that was when the government decided it was going to put VC money into companies in areas that, where Israel has advantage in. This was something that started quite a while ago. I mean, probably more than two decades. So he saw that as sort of a test case for something that could be done in Colombia. Colombia is a very relatively to the region, has a very educated, you know, uh, middle class. And uh, together with that, that was the most recent development. And then there was Impulsa. Impulsa is a, is a national body that also tries to, the name really says it all, to, to give impulse and impetus to innovators and try to help them with the first few steps of innovation. We used to basically have an exchange program with Impulsa and where we would bring a bunch of their people to Israel and do some sort of training on innovation, work on that. Got to look at the book and for our audience out there, we'll... We'll put the, the book's name and that in the show notes. What about Jamaica or the other countries you were at? Is it just mostly remembrance of Colombia? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm afraid to say different kind of countries, different kind of economies, different kind of, you know, Jamaica and Dominican Republic are probably more focused on tourism. They're more Dominican Republic is definitely betting on being a hub for production. Okay. So, I mean, right there, it was mentioned that Colombia was taking notes from what Israel had done decades before. Are there any cities or countries that Israel's taking notes from right now for innovation or ideas? I think that taking notes is a very strong 
way of describing it. However, we live in such an interconnected world that everybody's looking at what everybody else is doing. I would say always here, the US, Silicon Valley, but it's also interesting to us to see what's happening in countries like Estonia. Always uh, the Scandinavian countries have been cutting edge. I think in general, those are the ones that really we can speak of. I think it's always important to remember that Israelis are risk takers. So sometimes when you take a risk, you don't really bother to take notes. Why are they such risk takers? Just wondering. Because we're a small country and we have a lot of challenges to deal with and there's no other way. So I know it's cliche because it's been repeated so many times, but fear of failure is probably not something that exists a lot or it's not very common when it comes to Israeli startup or the startup culture that has developed in Israel. And that comes together with what we call chutzpah. And I'm sure you've heard the, the term before, which is that there is not really a lot of attention or respect paid to authority, to hierarchy that makes people even at entry level feel much more confident in not only going openly to their superiors, at least on paper and speak their minds about things that are professionally the direction that the company is maybe taking, coming up with new ideas, whether they're failure or not, and always kind of not stopping this sort of process of challenging one another. And it works both, but in both directions. So it's top down, but also bottom up. That's what I think makes it a much more. So, so the combination between challenges that we're facing and, and when I mean, when I say challenges, I don't mean necessarily the ones that we all know about like security challenges, which also drive us to be creative about solutions, of course, but everything else. And that is the climate change. That's water. That's how to make more with less. Now you'll find that for some reason, well, not for some reason, but there's a lot of interesting things happening in terms of food tech, you know, and non-animal protein. And the beauty of being able to do that is that we always may be thinking, we may be innovating locally, but the thinking is always much, much broader. And it's not a shame to say for the benefit of humanity sometimes. Do you think kind of having <clears throat> a, like a scarcity environment increases or improves creativity? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It must. Now, in which ways this creativity is taken, that's, you know, that's a question for sociologists more than startup people or investment bankers or, or diplomats. But I think that's just a natural way of kind of moving forward, right? Speaking of moving forward, Israel has, I mean, it's gone from the startup nation to the impact nation. Right. Can you share about this transformation? Yeah, startup nation is a term that has been coined, I think, two decades already. And is connected directly with the chutzpah principle and the necessity and creativity. Now, I can say that even though in the past it was still true that investors and companies were trying to focus on good things or something that would not cause explicit harm. We are seeing a growing trend in that. We're seeing more and more going into, you said it, impact, social impact. So there are several funds that have begun operating on the principles of impact investments. The largest of them is, is a fund called Bridges Israel, which manages about 80 million. They try to connect the entrepreneurial technological spirit of many Israeli companies with impact investing. And some of the fields that I mentioned, like food or climate tech, and of course, climate tech is a very big, large field, right? I mean, so you got water and you got seed resilience and you've got, I don't know, new crops or that kind of stuff. So... I think that, so I'm going to go back to something that's not necessarily connected with the hardcore technological subject. Israel has always been 
about impact, if I may say so. We've been about impact even when we were still a developing country. And what do I mean by that? And this is really a digression, but you'll forgive me. As far back as the 60s, Golda Meir, which was our first, you know, we are celebrating Women's Month and Golda Meir was one of our, was, was our first woman prime minister. She was minister of education. She was minister of foreign affairs. She decided that part of what we should do as a ministry of foreign affairs, as the diplomatic external branch of the government of Israel is also to try to help in the development of other nations. So we developed a body inside the ministry of foreign affairs called Mashav. And Mashav was basically doing that. It was doing technology transfer. It was doing training. It was doing best practices. And what we did is we went out to countries in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, and we shared our experience of dealing with challenges, whether it was agricultural challenges or educational or psychological or advancement of women, you name it. And I think that that is really the same thing that is happening now in technology in the sense that, first of all, we try to think not only on how this is helping Israel, but also how it would help humanity. And we are all facing, you know, I mean, it's not really a secret, right? When I'm sitting in my kitchen here in San Francisco and I'm turning on the faucet, I'm not thinking about, well, you know, California may have scarcity or may have more water than Israel does. I'm thinking water is global asset. It's a global resource. We all have to think about when I'm using water here, I'm thinking about water and not in the local sense. I'm thinking, and that's, I think what Israeli companies are doing as well. They're just thinking globally all the time. That's interesting that that mindset, looking at everything from a global macro picture instead of the local picture. Well, it has a market logic as well to it, right? Yeah. I mean, if you want to, I mean, you're thinking about a solution that will be applicable, not only in your like backyard, and that also makes sense in terms of how you want to grow your company. Oh, yeah. Especially <clears> if you're <throat> thinking that way from day one, that mindset, it's very interesting. And I want to go back to something I heard when you were talking about going to all these other countries and helping with best practices and that. How important do you think having good relationships on a government level are in order for businesses to be able to expand globally as well? Sounds almost logical and, and natural. I think that this is something that still exists. It has to be looked at from, I guess, sort of a multi-tiered perspective because many companies in many countries don't need the government to get in the middle of, you know, what do whatever they want to do and looking for the solutions for problems that they're trying to give an answer to. But on the other hand, there are quite a several instances in which when you have a political relation that is very close, you have an immediate advantage in advancing companies who A, may be unknown to the other side, B, may be known, but not necessarily considered, and three, may be known, considered, but not necessarily focused on the region where you're trying to bring them to as an Israeli government representative. So I think it still counts, it changes from somebody who represents the Israeli government here in the Pacific Northwest to somebody who's representing the country, say, in, uh, in Africa or in Asia or in Latin America. But I still think that there is an importance to it, and especially when it comes to B2G. So when, for example, I, as a consul general of Israel, is speaking to state-level governments, and I'm aware of what their challenges are, even if they may 
know already in the back of their minds that Israel can offer solutions, I definitely take advantage of my position in order to open doors. That's such a powerful tool. I think that maybe people don't realize how powerful the consulates are in opening up doors, opening up conversations and, and having an initial talk. Going back a little bit earlier on some of the technologies coming out of Israel, some of the companies itself, is there any technology or company or that that we should keep our eye out for? What's happening there that we may not know about over here? I have a couple of examples and I want to go back to, again, to impact and I want to go back to food tech because we see a lot of and of that and all this universe of vegan vegetarian alternatives is becoming more and more important. And nowadays Israel is probably second only to the US in terms of alternative meat startups and investments in those. So I think that first of all, that sector is super interesting to me, to us. And I say this as somebody who does eat meat, but you've got to take into consideration. And I'm, I know it sounds a bit contradictory, but it's not that I'm blind to the climate change effects of raising cattle and the meat industry. And the other thing is what some Israeli companies are doing now in order to protect bees. I don't know if you know, but there's a decline in the bee population worldwide. And some of these companies, they try to make sure that pollination is supported. If I'm not mistaken, one of these companies, I don't know, I can't remember the name, was even mentioned as the New York Times a few weeks ago, maybe over, over a month ago, published in its economic pages, like the best 10 or 20 companies who are having an impact on the world. And one of them was this company from Israel. I, I don't remember, I have two names here. One of them is BeWise, who's created uh, solar powered hives called Bee Homes. And basically these are hives that have a robot inside who takes care of the bees. Now, don't ask me what that means, take care, of, take care of the bees, but it allows bee growers to access data remotely and solve problems on the spot. And the other one called Bee Homes, they feature pest control, swarm prevention, and automatic harvesting. And it's bees, you know, who knew? But again, I'm not an ecologist, but I know that there is a, a chain of, you know, reaction or a chain effect to the decline in bee population globally. So I think these are simply and they're fascinated, they're inspiring, and they are definitely given a solution to global problems. It's pretty incredible how technology can play a part in everything. I mean, bees and that, it's probably not one of those first things that would come to mind when I'm thinking, right. you know, <laughs> robots and algorithms right. and everything else. But at the same time, it's critical to the the food supply chain it's critical to if you think about it, you take that out world <laughs> hunger it's fascinating yeah. that technology can be implemented in so many i'm going to look up those yeah, be wise and be home all right we'll see if we can <laughs> maybe get one on the show here in Why the not? future yeah so communication between israel and silicon valley over the years gets stronger and stronger and stronger yeah. how can well, either investors from Israel get access to Silicon Valley companies or Silicon Valley companies get access to Israel investors. Or is that kind of cross-border communications not yet developed or developing right now? We have a presence is so diverse and is so, I guess, also focused on that because, again, we Israelis look at Silicon Valley, they look at the Bay Area. And the, of course, some investors will naturally have presence here in the U.S., but there are nonprofits who are doing precisely that. One of them is, of course, an organization we like to partner with whenever we can. That's the California Israel Chamber of Commerce. And the other one's called the Israel Collaboration Network, ICON. And 
It's based both in Silicon Valley and in Israel, and they're helping Israeli entrepreneurs enter the U.S. market. And as I mentioned before, we also have our economic mission to the West Coast, who is doing that from the government side and with our help is opening doors, both B2B as well as B2G. I guess you dive a little bit deeper into that one of how can, and maybe not only the Israel consulate, but consulates in general, how could they help a company get access or land in a new city or country? So looking at this particular angle of businesses and developing, you know, business development, what we have is long, an ongoing experience and knowledge of the area where we operate. We have the right databases. We have the relationships, which I think is what counts most. The relationships are built over years. That's what we do on a daily basis. We look for new relationships. And in that way, we can support any company who comes here and wants to expand their operations because we can probably introduce them to an entire universe and a menu of possibilities. Again, it could be even, you know, VC, it could be design partners. We don't, we don't do relocation services, but we do that, you know? I'm curious for that, how far in advance would a company, say one of the B companies wanted access to Silicon Valley, would they have to contact the consulate a year in advance, six months in advance? What's kind of a time horizon in order to say, hey, this is what we'd like to do in the future. We'd like to start a conversation today. I think it's shorter, probably shorter term than that. It depends on what their expectations are, what is the strategic objective. But I think that it's more a matter of weeks. You know, you reach out to our economic mission. That's what they do all day. Then they'll be in a position to give you, you know, a menu of options and obviously start a dialogue with the company itself to understand what the objectives. And, and again, I got to be very honest. In many cases, they could choose, they have other options. They have as I said, there's a chamber of commerce, there's this nonprofit. But I think that the fact that there are so many options is actually what makes it even more interesting and more attractive because we work with all of them. We try to join forces on projects. Sometimes we definitely want to be able to help them help others. And I'm sure that that's what they do. I mean, we had, for example, worked with the chamber of commerce only recently and with our economic mission on facilitating as much as possible group of Israeli health tech companies who came for the JP Morgan health conference. And that was great. You know, that's the kind of stuff that we like to do. We just kind of strategically work together. So then what are kind of the goals then in terms of technology and that for the Israel consulate in the coming years? I would say try to look for more companies as they rise into the Israeli, you know, startup universe or ecosystem, as some people like to call it. Try to think ahead of what are the needs in this particular region that may find solutions in what are the nascent startups and try to draw attention of decision makers, VCs. And when I mean decision makers, of course, I mean government and politicians, VCs and partners to these companies. You know, I think that drawing attention is something that we try to do almost on a, again, very, very, frequently through our participation, through our conversations. I can give you an example. I, in November last year, I was invited to speak at a conference. It was the fall conference of Aqua. Aqua is the Association of California Water Agencies. And, you know, I spoke of what we have been able to do in terms of 
our water shortage, our challenges, climatic and otherwise. I can tell you for sure that some of these things probably people knew, but there's one thing people know in what you're talking about, or at least part of what you were, I was going to expose or what I exposed. Another is to hear it from a representative of the state of Israel to be able to share the information on a much more sort of informal level. I mean, it is a conference, it's true, but once you start talking about, you know, the, the little components that make the impact that we're looking for when, in this case, on water, and maybe there was a little bit of new information, I don't know, but I think that by raising awareness, even among people who are familiar with our successes or our breakthroughs in the water sector or on water issues, you're achieving something. So, you know, I spoke of, for example, on our very high levels of reusage of sewage water and putting it back in the agriculture. I spoke of how we manage, we have companies who with satellites are able to help companies or water is monitor their infrastructure and see where leakages are. And we, we have achieved a very low level of leakage from our infrastructure in Israel. I spoke of a company called WaterGen, who basically makes water out of thin air, just from humidity. Don't ask me the technological part of it, please. But they do. Now, of course, this is a small scale solution, but think about all the, ref the remote farms or, you know, those small villages, not necessarily in the U.S., but in places like Northern Colombia or countries in Africa, or even in situations of crisis, this could be a solution to immediate challenges, sometimes emergency situations. So I think that that's something that we always try to achieve, you know, taking advantage of existing knowledge of what we do, but raising awareness in order to increase interest. What really interests me is for a country with little resources, you've able to overcome so many problems. How is it then when you're in countries that have abundance amount of resources and yet they're complaining about problems? I don't know if that's a political question, but you know, I think that it's always about recognizing where the challenge is or where the challenges are. I remember when I was in the Dominican Republic, I used to say, again, going back to water, I used to say, you know, you can, you can throw a shoe in the middle of a, a field in the Dominican Republic anywhere. And without even, without even working too hard, there'll be a, a, a shoe tree growing because it's simply so rich land and water. So I think our job is not to tell other countries or other states what to do. Like this is going back to the Mashaf principle of development assistance. That's what, how we think of these things. I mean, we are like, this is what we've done in order to solve this particular problem. It may be similar to yours. Maybe the solution could be similar too. All right. But that's the level of impertinence that we allow ourselves. And maybe this is a political question, but also I think it's technology. And are there any trade missions coming up between Silicon Valley and Israel? Mm. And if so, what are goals of, of these trade missions that you'll hear about on the news? But at least for me, and I think many of our eyes probably really don't understand what happens in one of these. So right now, I can't think of anything happening in the near future. Also, you can imagine there's an ongoing private initiatives by big tech, other companies that just do it themselves. And we may or may not know about them depending on size and focus. But I think that normally it's all about 
bringing together physically, which is great, you know, after so many years on Zoom, even though, you know, direct flights from Israel to San Francisco in like five, 15, 14 hours, that's not easy. But bringing together and maybe seeing firsthand, experiencing firsthand what the Israeli technological sector has to offer, bringing people together, trying to see if there's, you know, a match. It's all about matching. And I think that these trade missions are also, to me at least as a diplomat, serve another purpose. And that's to maybe make people see what Israel is all about beyond what it has to offer on the technological side. You know, our culture, our challenges, our democracy. I know it's been a topic of discussion recently, but I think at the end of the day, these missions need a lot of groundwork in preparation because if you want them to be effective, if you want them to be result oriented, then you got to make sure you bring the right people from both sides to sit at the table. Otherwise it's, I mean, it's maybe tourism, maybe it's fun tourism, but it's not the purpose why they were sent to Israel to begin with. And then another side question here, just to kind of wrap things up outside of being the consulate general, any hobbies or that? From my understanding, you're right poetry. Not sure if you have something you could share with our audience, but what do you do when you're not getting phone calls from everywhere around the world? So thank you for that compliment. I don't really get a lot of calls. I do. I've been writing poetry for the last 20 odd years, but I write in Hebrew and I publish in Hebrew. Now, the funny thing is that, by the way, I don't know who gave you that piece of information. The funny thing is that when I started thinking about, about writing, my first very bad, very rudimentary, very raw texts were in English, not in Hebrew. The reason was that it felt more comfortable at the moment to write in a language that is sort of a little bit more remote from me, from who I am. And so it allowed me to address or to relate to issues or to talk about or to write about things that I didn't feel comfortable writing about in Hebrew at the moment or at that moment. Then, of course, I realized that if I wanted to make it more genuine in terms of my writing being a reflection of my experience, try to publish them, I needed to go back to Hebrew, even though Hebrew is not my first language. I was born in Rome, so my, so my first language is Italian. And I grew up in an Italian-speaking home. But I didn't start writing in Hebrew. I actually took whatever text I had in English by then and translated them from English to Hebrew. So now I think it's probably time to do the other, the opposite, which is to take some of the texts and try to translate them into English and maybe publish them in American journals. But, you know, this is nothing I've been seriously doing. Otherwise, I, I love football, but... American football mm, or... American football has a Colombian special... football. Well, yeah, Italian and English. I mean, American football has a special place in my heart, but, you know, I'm, I'm a very... I would say wounded soul, former Denver Broncos fan. So you know what happened with the Broncos way back 20, 30 years ago. But John Elway is like a name that always remains sort of. Uh, I'm curious how Denver of all teams, I mean, John Elway, amazing quarterback, fantastic. But yeah. he was at the same time as Joe Montana in the 90s. Yeah, I know. Well, just a very close friendship with somebody from Denver. That's what happens, you know. <laughs> And so football, real football, you know, not the one that you call football, but then you 90% you use your hands in order to play it and love going to chase center, love going to warriors games. It's really become sort of a wonderful experience and just the atmosphere. Of course, it's better when they win. So congratulations on four consecutive W's and uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to, it looks like we might have a postseason, so we'll see. 
And when I lived in New York, I kind of got into baseball. I mean, I went to a few games. So maybe I'll get to do that here. I like reading when I can. A little bit of cooking, very limited repertoire. Okay. Yeah. One other question, I guess, before wrapping it up. For the two-part question here, one for our audience, if anyone wants to find out more information about the consulate and the resources, what's the best way to go about doing that? But I'm also kind of curious, born in Italy, raised in Israel, traveled U.S., got to be a consulate in all these countries. How valuable is it, do you think, for someone to spend a part of their life in another country living there? I mean, I got to spend about eight years, Costa Rica, China, Europe, China. Wow. Met my wife in China and that. And you meet so many people here in Silicon Valley that moved here from other countries, but this isn't normal for most part of the world. This isn't normal for most parts of the U.S. even. Most people born and grow up in one area, but at least for myself, I find that opportunity to live abroad is so valuable. What are your thoughts on that? So, you know, I've lived in so many places and I definitely think that an international experience is important to one's development, but it also depends on how long you live overseas and where. I don't know what it looks like for people from the private sector who do relocation. I can only say that on the one hand, it's an experience that I think makes you a more well-rounded person, probably softer, but not too soft, more accepting on the other hand, but this is maybe from the point of view of an immigrant child who then lived in the country that he wasn't born here, wasn't born in, then started living in other countries. My experience living in other countries for long periods was that because of the nature of my job, and I enjoyed doing that, you develop a network, but while you do that, you also kind of start putting roots into a place. You know all the time that there'll be a day that you're going to have to dismantle this network or give it to the next person in line, pass it on. And that means you're going to need to uproot as well. And that is the most difficult, challenging thing of living abroad that I've experienced every time. And it doesn't matter if you made one good friend or 10. And thank God for technology, because nowadays it's really... I mean, it's a huge difference from 30 years ago when I started. That is helpful, but it's still not, not enough. You leave behind something. I don't want to sound too melodramatic, but you leave some of yourself behind as well. And I always found that the most difficult thing to deal with. And as far as the other question, we are online. We have our homepage. We have our accounts on social media, as well as our mission economic mission to the West Coast. And we are very accessible and very responsive. So Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, we have, we have of course, an, uh, the, the consulate has an account. Our economic, the head of our economic mission, his name is Omer Fine. He has an account. His mission has an account. Very easy to, to find us. Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, what I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. Please connect with me on my LinkedIn, Sean Flynn, or go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com, where we have all our past episodes and, well, you'll, you'll be up to date with what we're working on. And with that, Marco, I really want to thank you for your time this week on thank the you, Silicon Sean. Valley Podcast. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only 
Before making any decisions, consult a professional.